You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Today we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. So if you have your scriptures, you can go ahead and open up there. Uh, If you don't have a Bible this morning, that's okay. There should be a Bible somewhere underneath the seat around you. And if you don't own a Bible, please consider that a gift from us to you. Again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. So when you've gotten there, go ahead and stand with me if you're able for the reading of God's word this morning. Again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herod's daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod, or excuse me, when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you wish and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning, morning. I want to welcome you to Providence. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And uh, if it's your first time, thanks for making us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here. And we hope you really enjoy yourself. Like Scott said, we're continuing our trek through the book of Mark. And so we're jumping in right after uh, the portion of scripture that Eric covered last week, the sending of the 12 disciples, Jesus's visit to his hometown of Nazareth. Uh, And we're kind of picking up, as you could tell, uh, as we started to read the text, um, and just a really abrupt uh, starting line for the text this morning, which is the news of Jesus's ministry and his fame reaches now all the way to the palaces of Herod the Tetrarch, or some called him, you know, Herod Antipas the King. And so we're going to talk a little bit about this story. Before we jump in, we got a lot of work to do. We have some history to do just because it's hard to understand exactly why this uh, Jerry Springer-esque uh, royal dynasty is doing what they're doing here unless you understand some historical facts that come a little bit from uh, certain historical documents like Josephus of Antiquities and others. And so we're going to do a little bit of work there, uh, read through the text, and then try to say, okay, what it, why is the Bible including the story as it stands. So before we do it, though, I'd love to pray for us. If you'll bow your heads, I'll pray and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. Father, we come humbly before you and we start by saying thank you for the great privilege that we have to come and worship you, 
not just in song, but also in submission to your word. We confess to you that all of us have our own weaknesses and frailties. We have our own sinful proclivities, and we thank you that the blood of Christ is enough to cover our sins and make us holy and righteous in your sight even now. And so we do ask now that you would cover us and that we might receive the truth of your word with gladness. God, you alone know what each of us need uniquely, and we do pray that you would meet those needs by the power of your spirit through the truth of your word. And we ask it in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's kick off with verse 14. I want to spend some time here. I'm going to mix in some of the historical background as we get to passages that might be difficult to understand uh, if we don't have the historical context. So I'll just kind of read a little bit, talk, uh, and, and try to work our way through the body of the passage, and then we'll come back and try to do some application towards the back end. Okay, so let's start in verse 14. It starts by saying, King Herod heard of it. Now remember, what is the it? The it is what we've been reading so far. King Herod hears about Jesus' ministry filled with signs and wonders. And if we're going to take the actual body of text as it stands, he specifically is hearing of the disciples being sent out two by two from the mouth of Jesus with authority over demons and doing great works and signs. Herod hears about this. The fame has spread. And it says, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been, has been risen or raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So what we have here is there's a number of, uh, as we have seen throughout all of the Gospels, there's a number of different opinions about who Jesus is. Some of the most famous conversations between Jesus and his disciples include the question, who do you say that I am? First, he starts with who do people say that I am? And then who do you say that I am? We're actually going to get to that interaction with Peter, where Peter makes the confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But everybody has a different opinion about who Jesus is. And here we see an opinion from Herod that doesn't make much sense unless you understand the story that's going to be read immediately after. He says, this must be John the Baptist. Reminder, the cousin of Christ, the one who baptized Christ in the Jordan River earlier in the book of Mark. Herod says, it must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. The man who I beheaded has come back basically for vengeance. Now, the reason that the next portion of this text is important is because we have not been told that John the Baptist was beheaded yet. So we're jumping into this passage like, whoa, John the Baptist got killed by Herod. When did this happen? Well, you're going to see when it happened because Mark's going to provide the details for us. Why was John the Baptist beheaded? Why did Herod do it? What exactly is going on here? And then why is he now scared that John the Baptist is coming back, you know, basically to, to gain an upper hand on him? Let's continue. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Okay, let's pause for a second. What is happening in that verse? I want to read that again. Um, just listen to all these characters and all these people. This is why we're in a little bit of history here. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. 
Now, growing up in, in high school, I had a, uh, a friend uh, that had just come to our school, and his name was George IV. Now, most of you know him because you know that uh, you know, George Foreman had moved to what was then my hometown. What I found out, though, is he's like, we called him G4, but there's like eight or nine of them, and they're all George or Georgetta or, you know, it's very confusing, okay? So we all had nicknames for all of them. Herod's dynasty is kind of like this, in that you're going to have Herod the Great, and then Herod the Second, also known as Philip the Tetrarch, and then Herod, this Herod, who's not Herod the Great, he's Herod Antipas, and then just happens he's married to Herodias, who wasn't his wife before, but was actually married to Herod the Second. It's confusing, okay? And so, but we got to know exactly what's going on here because it's at the crux of why John the Baptist got himself thrown in jail. So, the story goes something like this. If you remember in the story of Christ's birth, there was a man named Herod who was king. That's not the same Herod that we're reading about here. That this guy, this Herod, who cuts John the Baptist's head off, is Herod the Great's son. So Herod the Great is visited by wise men or magi from the east. You guys remember this Christmas story. And they tell him, there is going to be born, or there is born, a king of the Jews. We saw his star in the east. We're come here to worship him. And Herod the Great is very well known for not liking the idea that he might lose his throne. He's very, very uh, conspiratorial. He's very um, nervous, anxious, constantly watching his back. So he says, hey, yeah, I would love for you to go worship this child. Just let me know where he is once you uh, get done with that. Because I'd like to worship him too, is what the Bible says. Well, of course, the Bible records he has no interest in worshiping the child. He wants to kill the child. The Magi go, they worship Christ, give him his gifts, and then they are warned in a dream not to go back and tell Herod anything. Herod is furious, and we get the infamous moment in uh, world history called the Massacre of the Innocents. This is where Herod the Great tells everybody in Judea, every male child two years old and younger will be murdered in order to try to snuff out Jesus' life. Jesus then is uh, taken away by his parents to Egypt and then comes back later on when, when Herod the Great dies. And of course, the scriptures tell us this is to fulfill the prophecy, out of Egypt I have called my son. And so he comes back. Now, Herod the Great had a number of sons. The two eldest sons were supposed to take the throne. And these two eldest sons um, were actually conspiring or perhaps conspiring or maybe not conspiring at all. We don't know based on the history books. But Herod the Great is definitely convinced that his two sons were conspiring to kill him to gain the throne early. Herod did not take kindly to this. And what Josephus records is that he kills both sons in order to keep them from taking the throne that they would inevitably inherit anyway. And so because those two sons had children, and one of them had a daughter named Herodias, and this daughter was then given over to another one of Herod the Great's sons named Philip. And he is, he, so he basically, Herod the Great, gives his granddaughter to his son for a wife. This would mean that he is forcing a marriage between a niece and an uncle. All right. Now, fast forward, Herod Antipas, that's the Herod of our story, who is the brother of Philip, are living side by side, but they always have a, a battle, as it were, of territory. Who's the stronger one? Who's the one who has more authority? And Herodias is a woman who wants to be around the power. She visits Herod Antipas, despite the fact that Herod Antipas is married, and they fall in love, so it says. And they both divorce one another's wives, spouses, and they marry each other. So Herod Antipas causes the divorce of his brother from his wife and then marries his wife and brings her into the palace. 
and everybody else basically is on the bad end of this stick. Now, the problem with this is not merely the grossness of it, because now he's marrying his niece again, another, another one, and it's his brother's wife. The problem is that we know that as the king of the Jews, as it were, that's what his title that he would be given was, that the commandments of the Mosaic law forbade this on two fronts. Number one, it was incestuous, and number two, he had no business taking his brother's wife, who was still alive. So, Herod might have been able to politically scheme out of this, to silence his adversaries, to quell the protest, to make sure that nobody could say anything, but he had a really big problem, and his name was John. John the Baptist was not quiet, not afraid, and was willing to say all of the things that no one else would say. We know this because John would say things like, uh, he's preaching a baptism of repentance, and here come the Pharisees, and he wouldn't say, oh, see, even the holy men come to my services. He would say, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So he's not afraid of Herod either, and he sees Herod. Some historians would say that he meets Herod on the road while he's on his chariot with Herodias, and he stands in the middle of the street and says, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. It really angers Herodias. Herod, it says, interestingly enough, is perplexed by it. He fears John, knowing that he is a holy and righteous man. And so ultimately, he tries to get the best of both worlds. He imprisons him. Now, Herodias is bloodthirsty. She is nursing a grudge against John. And she continues to petition Herod to kill this man, to end his life, to sentence him to death. And Herod's not too crazy about that idea. He knows who John is. He's afraid of the potential backlash that he may get from the community. But even more so, you get the feeling that maybe he's, a, he's worried about divine judgment. That maybe if I do something like this, God may not be pleased. And so he tries to get the best of both worlds. He gets imprisonment, but he protects him. So he's kind of the good guy in both scenarios, right? I'm imprisoning him for my wife, but I'm also protecting him for God and the people. Thinks he can ride both of these horses forever. Now we pick back up the story here on what happened. So as it stands, John gets imprisoned. And then it says there's an opportune time. This opportune time makes room for one of the most grotesque moments that we'll see in the New Testament, apart from obviously the crucifixion. But let's read verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man. He kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. This is a very weird relationship between John the Baptist and Herod. John the Baptist keeps giving him the business, and he keeps saying, come on back and tell me again tomorrow. Even though he has no intention of actually obeying, he keeps on letting him come in there and lay down the law on him. It's very interesting. Verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and his military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter, new character, so Herodias has a daughter by her former marriage to Philip, which would have made this another niece, okay, or another great niece, and now Herod Antipas is her stepdad in a weird way. You see how weird this is getting? This is why, I mean, it's Jerry Springer, you know. You are the father. This is that moment. Herodias gets her daughter, young woman, and sends her in to dance before the king. Let's watch this. She pleased Herod and all of his guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you wish, and I'll give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. 
she came in immediately with haste to the king and saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. The girl gave it to her mother. But when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now, with that setting, we need to be reminded, just for a second we're going to pull back and then we'll dive right back into some application. But remember where we are in the story of Mark. So far for the first six chapters, it seems as though Peter, through the writing of the scribe Mark, wants us to know that there's an authority in Christ the King that is juxtaposed over and against the earthly authorities and the earthly powers, whether they be the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the ruling elites of the Romans, that Jesus is a different type of king, that he exerts authority not merely like the Gentiles do, he doesn't merely exert authority like the scribes do, but he has authority over the demons, he has authority over sickness, he has authority over creation, he has authority in his preaching. He doesn't just relay God's word, but there's something about this guy that when he speaks, it's the very word of God itself. And here we see another moment where Christ and his kingdom and all of his authority is being juxtaposed against Herod's kingdom and the dysfunction of this household in Herod's dynasty. It's not coincidental that Jesus is born under Herod the Great's leadership, under his dynasty, and now this is his son, and this dysfunction is just continuing on down. But that's what's being juxtaposed against one another. Jesus has just sent out his 12 disciples. Herod considers them a great threat to him. But he mistakes who Jesus is by thinking, because his conscience is so seared, so messed up, he thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist coming back to really overthrow his kingdom. And so here we see Herod Antipas starting to act just like his, his, uh, his dad did, worried so much that someone's going to supplant me that I think that this prophet that I beheaded came back to life. Now, needless to say, and I said this to the nine, he actually probably should be worried about a resurrection, but he's not understanding which one it is. Okay, it's actually going to be Christ that's resurrected, much more terrifying than John the Baptist coming back. But that's the context through which we read this passage. This is about earthly authority versus heavenly authority, about Christ's kingship versus wicked kingship. But what I want to do is I want to get into the characters because I don't want us to read this and think, yeah, when you read through this, it just reminds you a lot of all the corrupt politicians through the ages, maybe even ones that we have right now. Even though that's true, I think we have a responsibility to read the text and ask of ourselves, where do we mirror the characters in a negative way that we might ought to be warned and repent? And where is God calling us to maybe mirror John, the suffering servant, who's the lesser Christ type here, but nonetheless, he is one, where he suffers well to the end and endures for preaching the truth of the word. So that's what I want to do, and I want to focus on Herodias, Herod, and John. So let's focus first on Herodias. Herodias is a woman who obviously has a lust for power. She moves from one uncle to the next in the hopes of gaining certain territorial advantages. She, just like Herod, had received the words from John that she needed to repent. But she, just like Herod, and in her own way, rejected repentance and instead fancied herself her own authority, her own God. Now, Herodias teaches us that if we refuse to kill sin through repentance, we will always end up wanting to kill the messenger who's calling us to repentance. 
This is true of all time. You ever wondered why in the Old Testament it talks about how many prophets end up being slain? It's because either we receive the message of the prophet and say, woe is me, forgive me God of my sin and find healing, or we triple down and say, woe is you that you would ever point out what's wrong in me. And then we start to loathe the very messenger who just brings the truth. Does this make sense? This is what happens here with Herodias. You notice she doesn't receive the word. She rejects the word. And soon John is really the bad guy. John's the one who she's going to nurse a grudge against. Now, we know this is human nature because even as a child, you know, this is when if you're a parent, you know this, or if you just think back to your childhood, maybe you should think uh, your parent points out something that is sinful in you and calls you to repentance, calls you to obey. And who are you mad at? Your mom. Right? You see this if you're a parent. You get, why are you mad at me? I'm just pointing out the truth. But the anger goes at the person who reveals the sin. And this is how we still act today. Herodias shows us, though, the most extreme version of this. That if, it, if we continue to triple down and triple down, it just leads us to more debauchery. Unrepentant sin will always cause us to dehumanize and debase the people around us that we are called to love the most. So notice that as she nurses this grudge against John, she's even willing to sell and prostitute her own daughter to get her ends, right? Because ultimately the means are justified by the ends. She believes that it doesn't matter how I get this done, it needs to get done. This man must be silenced. And then lastly, we see this barbaric generational pattern and we're going to talk a little bit more about this at the end because it's riddled throughout this entire passage. But we see here that Herodias, who, li- who watched her father be killed by her grandfather because of political motivations, and then lived with Philip, she then decides to betray her own new husband, as it were, in order to gain leverage power. And now she's willing to go in this covert way to utilize her daughter. And now we see that she asks for John the Baptist's head, but her daughter asks for it on a platter. So it's just this degradation that continues to increase. Now, this is no small thing. You might think, oh, what's the big difference? Remember, they're at a feast. And what they're saying is, you know what I'm going to devour? The head of John the Baptist. It's a cannibalistic typology-ish symbol. Even if it never happened in the physical, that's the symbol that a head on a platter gives. And we see that even in the daughter, it's gone to its utmost extreme. This is what sin seeks to do in us. It's to take us to places that we never thought we would go. Sinful lust for power and ambition, it always takes us to sinful things that we never thought we would do, we'd never even have considered, and it's usually because we don't take the time to consider it until it's done, which is what happens both with Herodias and with Herod. Now that leads me to Herod, which Herod obviously has a lust for power. I mean, this is not questionable, but there's another lust in Herod that seems to be front and center in this passage, which is his lust for women. He lusts after this woman that is his brother's wife, divorces his own and takes on this woman because he calls it love. By the way, if you read about Herod, he does this often. He falls in love with new women that he takes on and ends up either killing his ex-wives or exiling them, okay? But it's always because he just fell in love with this new woman, okay? Herod's lust for women causes him to break the commandments of God, but Herod is very, Jesus actually calls Herod a fox, He's very deceptive. He's very cunning. He tries to halfway repent or halfway obey. He protects John, hears John's words, but has no intention of actually being obedient to the word of God. He keeps his wife happy. He keeps 
in some ways, what he considers the people happy because, yeah, John's kind of censored, but I'm protecting him. Don't worry, I'm feeding him good. I'm listening to his sermons even every week. But here's the problem is that when we think we can contain lust, when we can contain this kind of sin, and we're, we're strong enough to be able to compartmentalize it. It doesn't have to really affect my marriage. It doesn't have to affect my life. It doesn't have to affect my ministry. It doesn't have to affect, no, I got this sin, and I just, I'm keeping it kind of like a pet. It always ends up finding us out. The very same self-same sin that he thinks he can contain is the very sin that's going to lead him to a choice that he'll forever regret. Because it's his lust that causes him to speak out of turn with all of his buddies around as he's watching his stepdaughter dance before him. And he says, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. Name it. I have it. I own it. I can give it to you. And she says, the head of John the Baptist. The truth that you have, the man of truth that you have locked up in the closet, I want you to bring him out and murder him. And it says he's exceedingly sorry. He knows that he's, over, he's overplayed his hand. But I want to point out also that it doesn't only say that Herod is exceedingly sorry. It also says that he immediately makes his choice because it's now a pattern for Herod. He will immediately make the choice for his own personal lusts. We learn from Herod that we cannot negotiate with sin because sin seeks to devour and it's its only plan. We learn from Herod that pride in thinking that we can negotiate with sin will cause us, just like Herodias, just like Herod, to become more debased his sin multiplies. It doesn't stay where it is. Some of us think, well, I've only done this and I can keep it over here and it's just this vice that I have, but sin always multiplies because it's like a fire seeking to burn. It will find kindling. Sin always causes us to serve our own desires in the name of our own freedom, our own autonomy, our own kingship. We can do whatever we want. That's what Herod thinks until you realize, no, you can't because you're not God. And then and only then we're met with that decision that choice. You can only ride two horses for so long. Jesus said it like this, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money or God and power or God and lust. You cannot serve two masters. Either you will love the one and hate the other or you will hate the one and be devoted to the other. Now this temptation to serve two masters, we should feel, we should know that's, that's familiar to us. It's our pride that causes us to believe that somehow we can manage this monster called sin. I want you to notice that Herod liked listening to John. He received him gladly. Even though John was prophetically denouncing him, speaking directly against his sin, calling him to repentance, he was willing to listen to him and even protect this man. Why? Because just as in Herod's day and in our day, there are always men who believe that just being around the word of God, associated with it, is enough. Liking to hear virtuous sermons, liking to hear someone preaching, even someone talking tough to me, we equate that to actually being righteous. The book of James says we deceive ourselves because we become hearers of the word, but not doers of the word. We hear the word gladly, but we have no intention of implying it to our lives. This was Herod's way. And therefore, Herod was obsessed about his perception. If the people, the Jews, if they saw him as a righteous king, it didn't matter if he was righteous behind closed doors so long as they saw him as such. So he kept up appearances. He knew that the word would get out if he killed John. 
So he kept him alive. He sent out propaganda ministers telling them about how John would come into the court and deliver sermons to King Herod so that people might say, man, he's got John in the palace preaching to him. This guy must be actually turning. Maybe he's starting to really trust God. No, Herod's intention was that the people might believe he was virtuous, believe he was holy. And in so doing, he had no problem abusing and ultimately murdering a truly righteous man. Almost like thinking that if we sat around in a garage for long enough, we could become a car. Some of us deceive ourselves that if we sit around long enough under the word without ever applying it, that we'll just become holy. We'll become righteous. We'll become Christians. We'll become no. In fact, it's more dangerous. The longer that we reject it, the longer that we quench the spirit, the longer that we dilly-dally with those things that we know ought to be killed, namely sin, the more hold they take on our hearts. And that's what we see in Herod is that he was a slave even though he thought he was a king. He was enslaved to his sin. He was enslaved to his passions. And because he fancied himself a king, it was that very same pride that led to his downfall. But that leads us to our last man, which is John. And not much is said about him in this passage, but we know enough. John was a man who did not fear man, but God. He was the anti-Herod. Herod cared deeply about others' impressions about him, and John cared Nothing about what you thought of him. He didn't wear the clothes that everybody else wore. The Bible tells us this. He wore rough clothing like a wild man. His diet was locusts and honey. He lived in the wilderness. He didn't have a nice house. The trappings of wealth, the choices of foods, all the things that Herod was, John was the antithesis of it. And Herod, this is why he's so perplexed by John, is he cannot understand a man who doesn't care at all about his own life that he would just directly tell King Herod, you're a sinner who needs to repent, you and your wife. And Herod thinks, who is, what kind of person thinks that I couldn't just end him right here? He's perplexed. It's almost like a toy thing that he's playing with. Little does he know that he is speaking with a giant of the faith. If he could see in the spiritual, he would have seen royalty before him. But John the Baptist is not interested in that kind of glory. He heeded the spirit of God and he walked in obedience. I want you to remember that even as we talk about the generational history of Herod Antipas and Herodias and their evil father and grandfather, Herod the Great, John, although he did have loving and righteous parents, he did not have perfect parents. If you remember the story, Zechariah himself did not believe the words of God that came from an angel that his wife Elizabeth would have a child. He disbelieved it in the middle of a sacrifice as he's worshiping God. An angel shows up and says, your, your, your wife who's barren is going to bear a child. You're going to name him John, and he's going to be the one who prepares the way of the Lord. And Zechariah says, no, that's a joke. His mouth is muted for nine months because of this disobedience. Now, I point this out to say that John, although he didn't have Herod as a father, he didn't have a perfect father. And yet, John the Baptist, when he heard the word of the Lord and the Spirit of God came upon him, he responded. He obeyed. John not being swayed by worldly powers should be important to us. If you're wondering why it is that the Bible doesn't end by telling us that Herod and Herodias eventually were judged by God. You ever thought that? Maybe you're not sure if they were. By the way, the history books, this is what happens to Herod. 
Herod, in the end, along with his wife, get exiled off to an island, and they die there. That's how they die. So this is the beginning of the downfall for him. But you notice the Bible doesn't end that way? My guess is that Mark, writing this later on with Peter, would have known that story. He would have already known that Herod's end was pretty brutal. But he doesn't tell us that story. And the reason that he doesn't tell us that story is because just like John, we must know that there are times where standing and doing the right thing by the power of the Spirit will not result in earthly rewards, but only eternal rewards. That you won't be able to see the eventual end with your own eyes, that this is going to turn out for my good. You remember what Paul said when he was imprisoned? He said, I'm not sure if this is going to work out for, you know, death or for life, but whether by death or by life, I pray that Christ would be glorified. For to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said, I might die, I might live, but either way, Christ is going to be glorified. Because Paul understood that sometimes God shows up in heroic rescue, and sometimes, like John the Baptist's, the executioner shows up and you feel like God left you abandoned. But the eternal reward stands secure. And the only way that we might stand in the day when we're faced with that is to read passages like this and be reminded that it's not the strength of the will, it's not the strength of the man, it's not the power that we have within ourselves, but it's the power of God through our Lord Jesus Christ that causes us to endure and how do we learn to endure? Well, in the same way that small compromises of Herod, small compromises of Herodias led to big compromises, small acts of obedience lead to big obedience. Brothers, sisters, if we could grow in just the small obediences, the small things that we know God's calling us to do, the things that we've seen developed in the word very, very clearly before our eyes, it's those things that begin to prepare us for big moments of obedience, like what John faced here. But I want to close with this. Remember, in the big scheme here, in the big view here, what Mark is doing is juxtaposing the kingdom of darkness with the kingdom of light. As a reminder, Christ does not lust for power in his ministry on earth. Instead, Philippians 2 tells us that he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He laid it all down. So that what? So that at the name that is above every name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Christ Jesus is Lord, but not because he grasped his own power, but because he laid it down and died for us. Christ does not kill his sons to preserve power or try to rally around in this way. No. In fact, the most famous verse in all of the New Testament tells us that God so loves the world, he gives his own son. And Jesus came by and said, and I laid my life down. No one took it from me. That between the father and the son, there was an agreement that they would die rather than kill. That rather than lambs being slain, they, Christ would be the lamb that was slain. There would be no more bloodletting after Christ on the cross. Christ does not use his children as political pawns, prostituting them for his own selfish gain. No, instead, we see the Lord Jesus in his ministry as he kneels down before the woman caught in adultery and says, Daughter, neither do I condemn you. I go and sin no more. Christ is the better king. John is one of his servants willing to die for that belief. We see in Luke chapter number 11 that John the Baptist had his moment of doubt. He wasn't sure Jesus was who he said he was, and so he sent his messengers to say, Ask Jesus if we need to be waiting for someone else or if he's the guy. In the moment of doubt and darkness, he's thinking, 
Shouldn't I already be out of here if Jesus is the guy? And Jesus responds and he quotes Isaiah 61 and he says, tell John everything that you see, that the blind eye is opened, that the mute tongue is made to speak. And he continues on with the poor being uh, no longer oppressed and he quotes Isaiah 61, everything except for one line which says, the captives are let free. He leaves that out. So Jesus basically sends his messengers back to say, I am the one, and here's all that I'm doing, but you have to face this because you're going to die here. And what we see is that the Bible records John doesn't recant. He doesn't say, never mind. He doesn't say, I wasn't really sure about it. I thought the guy was this guy, but maybe he's not that guy. He goes all the way to the end. It's a reminder to us that to be a witness to Christ has costs, And it also has rewards. Jesus said that John the Baptist was the greatest among men who had ever lived. There is an eternal reward even as there is an earthly cost. But I want to end with asking this question. How will we respond to the word of the Lord? Well, this morning my prayer is that you would learn to be obedient in the small things. If you are nursing a grudge as Herodias did, do not continue to play with that sin, but respond to the Spirit of God And forgive even as you have been forgiven this morning. If perhaps there's some kind of sin that, like Herod, you believe can remain contained in your life. I can handle this. I don't need anyone else's help. I don't need to confess that. I don't need to talk about it. I've got this under control. My prayer is that in a small step of obedience, you would confess this sin to God. And perhaps someone who loves you and cares about you and can encourage you because there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Perhaps it's something like John the Baptist that you know you ought to do, but man, is it scary to do it because it feels risky. It feels as though if I do the thing that I know that God's calling me to do, maybe I might lose friends. Maybe I not, might not be popular. Maybe I, might not, maybe I might be seen as crazy. And we need to be reminded of John the Baptist who said, I'm all right with all those identities as long as I'm obedient to the Father. But most of all, whatever it is that the Holy Spirit clearly through the word of the Lord brings to you this morning, my prayer would be that you would not fall into the pattern of rejecting it, resisting him. Because we see in this passage that this resistance hardens us over time. And that hardness only devolves and it continues to devolve until before we know it, we're doing things we never thought we'd be willing to do. But remember, It's the small acts of obedience that lead to big obedience. The snowball goes in both directions. A small act of obedience this morning by responding to the Spirit, tomorrow will cause you to be more sensitive to the Spirit. It brings you, in the book of Acts, it says times of refreshing from the Holy Spirit. And I want to pray for us that God might bring that to us if we would just be receptive. So let me pray. Father, we confess to you now that each of us, whether we know or do not know, each of us have those areas that you seek to bring life to by the power of your gospel. And we confess, God, that some of us know what they are and some of us do not. So we ask, we pray, we plead. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us now? If it be a grudge that we're holding in unforgiveness, remind us of the poison that's there that we might be forgiving. If it be a sin that we think that we can contain on our own, but we have not yet brought it before the throne room, brought it before you and confessed, we pray, my God, would you give us courage to lay it out before you and perhaps even confess it to a brother or a sister 
in Christ. Father, if it be something that we know for a long time you have been calling us to do or say, but we are very afraid, we pray now that you would give us the courage, the courage first to call out to you and ask for the anointing of your spirit to to be able to even carry out such a command. But secondarily, give us the courage, my God, to be obedient even in the face of many things that we might fear. Teach us to fear you, my God, above others. And finally, my God, I pray that as the truth of your gospel is manifested in the Lord's Supper, that we would not just feel, but that we would know and experience the forgiveness that is in the blood and broken body of our Savior, that we would know that we are forgiven and welcomed in by Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.